A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we start, I just want to remind you that you can be in touch with me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com um, for sponsorships and doing all types of creative uh, lectures online, Zoom, for your events or simchas or family get-togethers or whatnot, and virtual tours, so can be in touch with me about that as well. Uh, it's becoming more and more popular lately, so I just wanted to put it out there. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Briskarov and his family with their arrival in uh, Israel in the 1940s, and they escaped from the war, and a little bit about the family. I'm calling it part one because I imagine that this is a big enough topic that we can get to um, many more, and there's always a lot of stories, and people very often enjoy Brisker stories, and and uh, you know about the Brisker family, the Soloveitchiks. Um, the, you know, we're talking specifically about the Israel branch, and in, in here, um, there's an apocryphal story. You'll start with that, just get us into the mood of the Brisker of and his family, and what does a Brisker story mean, which probably never happened, but it gives a sense of of uh, what what it's all about here, that the Rav's daughter, the Brisk Rav, of course, is Rabbi Yitzchak Zev Salavechik, known also as Rabbi Velvela Salavechik. He was the youngest son of Rabbi Chaim Salavechik, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, who was the rabbi in Brisk after his father, Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, the Beis Halevi. And Reb Chaim afterwards was also the rabbi of Brisk. And then later, Reb Velvela was also the rabbi, the last rabbi of Brisk uh, till the war. Um, and uh, and, the Brisk, and he's known to posterity, not just as Reb Zev or Reb Velvela or any other title, but most most belovedly and most well-known as the Brisker Rav, and, or just the Rav. And, um, and he... And he you know, escapes the war and comes to Israel with a, po- a portion of his family in 1941, which we'll get to. And he's his one of his daughters is one of the more famous daughters who he comes with, Lifsha, 
And uh, so the way this apocryphal story goes is that she, the, the Rav is, a, is soon to be lighting Hanukkah candles. And there's a broom near the menorah, near where he's going to light his Hanukkah candles. And so Livsha takes away the broom. And the Briskarov says, why are you taking away the broom from next to the menorah? And she says, because I imagine some of your students are going to come and watch how you light the Hanukkah candles. And they're going to see that the broom is here. So they're going to assume that the Briskarov is of the position that you must have a broom next to your Hanukkah menorah when you light the candles. So the Briskarov smiles and says, you didn't really accomplish anything by taking the broom away, because then my students will assume that you must have a broom near the Hanukkah candles, and right before you light, you're supposed to take it away. And that is an insight into understanding the Rav's family and the nature of the Brisker story. Um, I remember when I was in in, uh, in the Mir Yeshiva, so one of my Rebbeim, there was a Rafal Shmulevitz, the son of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, the Mir Yeshiva, and uh, and he he used to give an annual shear. He gave many shear. He gave an annual shear on his father's yard site, on uh, on uh, Gimel Teves every year, the day after the end of Hanukkah. And I missed it one year. It was the yard site shear in the base medrash? And I went over to Rafal afterwards, the day later or later that day. I don't remember. And I said, I apologize. I wasn't able to make the shear. Can you tell me basically what it was about? The the idea, give me a summary, you know, the lowdown on what the shear was about. So he we sat down and started discussing it, and he tells me the shear, and he said I quoted my father's uh, position on the sugya, and I asked some questions, and then I, you know, went with a different way. I went with my own way, and he explains to me his way. So I say to him, "What do you mean?" You're saying a shear on your father's yard site and you didn't agree with his position. You argued on it and went differently. And he looks at me and he says, He would call his father the father. He wouldn't say tati or daddy or anything. He said, this is what my father would have wanted. He wants, he wants to, us to argue and to, you know, and to have our own way. That's exactly what my father wanted. And then he ends off with a, Twinkle in his eye, and he says, "Ich bin nishkin brisker. I'm not a brisker," uh, meaning that the you know the brisker way is to do exactly like the father, vidatata, exactly how the father did it in the exact tradition, and that's a very strong characteristic of brisk in general and of the family of the brisker of in Israel to try to not deviate anything from what the brisker of ever did. Um, so. We start with the Rav's escape from Europe. You know, the Rav had bad asthma, he had a lot of uh, health issues, and he would spend several months a year away from his community, away from Brisk, because the doctors told him he needs to work on his health and be in resort areas with better air and the mountains and fresh air. He had a very weak, um, very struggled his entire life. He always went on walks and exercise and be in these resorts. And even when he was in Israel, he used to go to Switzerland every summer. Um, and and uh, so the Rav uh, was in the Brisk Rav was in Krenitz, uh, one of his favorite resorts. He was there very often, almost every year for several months in the summer. And of course, we know the war breaks out in September, so that finds him um, in the uh, in, uh, in the in in Krenitz in the uh, in in the resort when when the war breaks out. I saw one book brings that 
that that uh, the war broke out the week of Slichus. It definitely did not break out the week of Slichus. It broke out a week or two before that. But okay, who's getting picky on uh, on when exactly the war, World War II broke out? Either way, so he goes from Krenitz, which is in the south of Poland, in Galicia, to Warsaw, to the capital. He gets a train to Warsaw, and from there he wants to go east to Brisk. But the trains aren't running regularly. He's not able to make it to Brisk. So he's stuck in Warsaw for the holidays. He gets a, you know an esterig and a lulav, a whole story, and he makes it to Vilna. And he spends the next year or so in a little over a year in Vilna. And he tries to get the rest of his kids with him. He, at the time, was only with his oldest son, Rav Beryl Soloveitchik, who we'll get to in a minute. And he, and he, um, and then he sends, he sends telegrams and letters to his wife and to send the rest of the kids. And then she should come and they'll get visas. In either way, the Briskorov is able to get a visa. And he eventually makes it out. And while he was in Vilna, actually, he was there for Pesach of 1940. Interesting story. The Briskorov was very particular about using hand matzahs. And in Vilna, as in most places, the Litvaks, they used machine matzahs. And Reb Chaim went so far to have that they didn't have any hand matzah bakeries in Vilna under the auspices of Reb Chaim and during his tenure as the uh, rabbi in Vilna. And um, the Reb Chaim Weizer, everyone used machine matzahs. Reb Chaim Weizer and all the other Rabbanim in Vilna, they only machine. And because of the great respect that the Reb Chaim Weizer had for the Briskorov, although he was his junior by quite a few years, Reb Chaim Weizer arranged for an old, old hand matzah baker that had been closed many years before to be able to have a run uh, for that Pesach just to be able to provide for the Briskorov the specific hand matzahs that he wanted. That's uh, the respect that he had for the Briskorov. So in, in any event, uh, the Rav makes it out in uh, in uh, in, uh, in ni- early in 1941, um, but he wasn't able to get everyone out. He was with uh, he he took six of his children with him, and eventually his oldest son Rav Beryl um, made it out on his own. He also got a visa, so he had seven children with him. But the Briskorov. Originally, actually, he had 12 children. Two children had passed away as, as young infants, unfortunately. And, but the Rebetzin, Rebetzin Alta Hindel, who was actually in Euerbach, a very old, prestigious Yerushalmi family who had moved back to Europe. Um, so she, also a very special woman, and a very special Rebetzin to the Brisk Rav. There's a lot to say about her. But she's in Brisk with three of the younger kids, and she's supposed to make it to Vilna and pick up the visas that the Rav was able to arrange for her and the other children. And she wasn't able to make it to Vilna. So the Rav leaves with six kids. Rav Beryl is still behind. And the Rebetzin, his mother, comes to Vilna to pick up the visas. And that day the visa office was closed. She was not able to get it. She meets with her son. And that was the last, last, uh, last family member to have met with her. And uh, she says she's going to make another attempt to come to Vilna to uh, to get the visas. In the meantime, Rebarrel himself, his turn comes to leave. He makes it out. And then uh, she sends a letter to the Briskorov in Eretz Yisrael saying that she uh, is not able to... The, um, the road to Vilna has already been closed. She can't make it to pick up the visas. She was stuck. And she and the three children were killed when the Nazis later in the summer of 1941 invaded the Soviet Union, and um, and the Jews of Brisk were killed in a great uh, mass grave outside of Brisk. Very terrible and tragic story. 
So, so the Rav is now in, in, in Israel and comes there in 1941 through Odessa and Turkey and Syria and Lebanon. He finally makes it to, to Eretz Yisrael and he settles down in Yerushalayim and he is a, fa- a single father with young kids, uh, young children. Some of them were older, but some of them were younger. So it's, you know, we look at the, the human side of the story here. He has to raise, raise these children on, on his own. Um, he did not remarry. Um, and it was a challenge, definitely a, a, a difficult situation. Um, but the Briskarov was the Briskarov and he was able to persevere and he had, uh, you know, pretty amazing children. And we're going to talk a little bit about each one of uh, those children. There's so much to say, but perhaps, like I said, we'll get to it, uh, you know, get to a more complete profile in in a part two or part three or whatever it is. Um, so you have his oldest son, who I mentioned already, Rav Beryl. In Europe, he was his father's right-hand man. He was the oldest, and he would accompany his father in his, in his trips to the resort, to, you know, to Krenitz and other places. And he later on marries a, a Weinstein. Um, her father was a, a Navardiker, a student of Navardik. She was actually a grandchild of Rabbi Shuat Simblist, who was a, a Rav in Minsk and later on lived in Yerushalayim. And um, actually, Rebel passed away in 1981, but his wife survived him by quite a few decades. She only passed away several years ago. I remember it wasn't that long ago, it was just a couple of years ago. Um, and, and they, there was a story going around again, one of these brisker stories that you, either you appreciate or you don't. And, um, in her later years, she didn't speak. She didn't talk at all. And someone at the Shiva asked her, Beryl's son, who's the current Rosh Hashiva in Brisk, or Beryl Yeshua Soloveitchik, asked her, where, where does this not talking at all come from? Is it come from Brisk? Or does it come from Navardik? From her parents' home? So, you know, is, is, you know, why did why didn't she speak? So he said she didn't speak because she didn't want to. She was scared that she would say nonsense. She said the word that they used, probably meant to use, was shtuyot or shtuyos, uh, but they said it in a yeshivish way, shtusim, shtusim. She didn't want to say any shtusim, so she didn't talk at all. So the question is, does that custom come from brisk or from Navardic? And Rav Yeshua answered, "Nisht redden shtusim ef shekumt von Navardik, aber zuweisen eibs shtusim oder nit, das kumt nor von brisk." To not talk nonsense perhaps comes from Navardik. A musar idea to not speak nonsense, to not say nonsensical things, but to know what is nonsense and what is not nonsense. That definitely you need the brisker mind for. That's a very a classic brisker story. Um, Rebel was essentially the one who opened the brisker yeshiva. Talmidim loved him, very beloved. I've spoken to several students of, of Rebel speak about him with an awe till today. In, in, that, in, that, in that context, it's interesting that some of them call him Rebel, and some of them call him Reb Yashaber, you know, like his, uh, his famous cousin in America who's also sometimes referred to as Rabbi Yashaber, or the Rav. And, uh, and he opens the yeshiva in his father's apartment. And his father's apartment was not owned by him. He had, he had rented it, a special type of rental of Yerushalayim, unique to Yerushalayim, called Schlisselgelt, which, uh, which is a special 
type of rental, the economic transactions, perhaps the details of which we can discuss another time. But his younger brother, Rabbi Rafal, who also will get to, he fought with the landlord for quite a long time to be able to retain the apartment, and that's how the yeshiva started. And he started and he made it into official yeshiva, and it grew in, under his son, Rabbi Yeshua's uh, watch till today. Another child of uh, of the Briskarov was his daughter, Lifsha, who I also mentioned earlier. She was quite a personality, a very strong personality, a very you know product of her father. She actually, in the early 1940s, she was the woman of the house. There was no mother. She took care of her father during the first years in Israel. She would cook. She ran the house. Um, there was no mother or wife. And the, you know, like I said, it was the Rav himself was a bit broken. Um, and there were older singles in the house. It was it was it wasn't the ideal most ideal situation. And she ran it. She she was able to make it a you know a, a somewhat an, a regular home. And uh, she later on, uh, after the war, married uh, Remichel Feinstein. And Remichel Feinstein was a close student of the Briskarov from his Mir days. When he was in the Mir, he was part of that group in the Mir that went to study by the Briskarov, which was common for the senior students at the Mir Yeshiva in the 1930s. And uh, Remichel Feinstein himself, his father, had passed away when he was very young. He was a young boy. And he grew up by his uncle, Rabmeisha Feinstein, and also by his other uncle, Reb Mordechai Feinstein. Reb Mordechai Feinstein was the rabbi, Reb Moshe Feinstein's brother was the rabbi in Shklov. And uh, he was actually, he remained in Russia even after Reb Moshe Feinstein left, and he, was, he and his family were killed by the Nazis. But in any event, Reb Michal Feinstein goes on to study in the Slutsk Yeshiva, and then later when it crosses the border in Kletsk, and then in Mir, and then in uh, Mir for quite, a, quite, quite some time, for many years, and then uh, for a period of time by the Briskarov, and he escapes at the beginning of the war, like most of the Mir Yeshiva, uh, to Japan. But in Japan, he's able to get to the United States. He doesn't go to Shanghai with the rest of the Mir, like some of the other Mirrors. Some, some of the Mirrors made it straight to America at the, in 1941, and he gets a position uh, eventually by his uncle in MTJ. He becomes a rabbi there. For a period of time, he was actually in Boston in, uh, by, the, uh, by the Yeshiva um, that Rav Salvechik started, in Boston, uh, 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 called, uh, I forgot exactly what it's called, Rabbi Shiva Srib Chaim, or Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, um, gets named after his grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Brisker. So he was there for a couple of years. He was a Rebbe there. He was a, kind of the Rosh Shiva there for a period of time. And then he's back in MTJ, and he eventually goes to Israel right after the war in 1946, and he marries the Briskerov's daughter. Um, of course, he had no family. No one was there by his wedding on his side. They all came uh, pretty much for the Briskarov. So Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, who was his rabbi back in Slutsk, walked him down to the, the chuppah. So he comes back to America. He moves with his wife. And Lifsha had, Rabbi Lifsha had the distinction of being the only child of the Briskarov who uh, lived in the United States for several years, which you know did not continue as a policy uh, with her children, to say the least, but um, but uh, Rav Michal Feinstein um, is, was spent several years as a rebbe at MTJ with his uncle, um, but the Rav was not happy about him being an American. He kind of forces him to come back uh, to Israel. In fact, Rav Michal Feinstein tells him, I, "You know, I'm needed in America. In Israel, in Bnei Brak, you have the Chazoyin Ish, in Yerushalayim, you have you, the Risker Rav. You know, it's it's a full a full. Uh, they have they have everyone." But I, I'm, I'm, I'm needed in America. But he still, he comes back in 1952, and um, and and I always wondered, perhaps that because of this saying that he said to his father-in-law about 
about where he's needed, perhaps that's why he moved to Tel Aviv. I don't know why, I'm not sure, but, but he did move to Tel Aviv and he opened the yeshiva there and he's there for well over 20 years and only in the 1970s he moves to Bnei Brak. He lived a very long life, he deep into his 90s and Rebetzin Lifshid lived even longer. She only passed away several years ago. In fact, in Tel Aviv connection, so the Briskarov, when he would go to the beach in the summer, he would go to the beach in Tel Aviv. In fact, one time uh, I was in the Mir Yeshiva when I was a bacher. Uh, the, I went. I was in the dorm and I had a a, a brisker friend, you know, uh, and uh, and and he it was the summertime. It was around now in August, and he asked him what I'm doing that day. I said I'm going with a couple of guys to the beach. He said which beach? I said in Tel Aviv. So he goes, oh, the briskarov went to the Tel Aviv beach. So I guess that's why you should go. I said, no, I'm just going because it's convenient. And I'm not going at all just because the briskarov went. But that's how the briskers, uh, you know, interact. The most, one of the most interesting children of the briskarov, most important, one of the most important stories, an active son of the briskarov was Rebrefal Soloveitchik. Um, he was literally his father's right-hand man in everything. He was a sickly as a child, so he didn't even go to the cheder and brisk. Um, so he was always under his father's direct care. He's the activist of the family. He took care of his father and everything. The briskrov in his last months, he, Rafael Silvechi couldn't even live at home. He, he barely slept because his father uh, needed him and literally couldn't do anything without him. As soon as he would walk out of the room, the briskrov would say, where is Vu is Rafal, Vu is Rafal, where is he? He he always needed him. He uh he couldn't do any, you know, he needed him for everything. And, you know, in the early years, the Biskarov, it's hard to believe. He barely had a minion in his in his for his uh, in his house for the early years. And Rafal had to always go out to make sure he got a, a minion with him. Rafal was the one who accompanied his father on his walks, on his daily walks around the neighborhood. All the way up, uh, all the way down David Yellen Street up to Davidka Square and that whole area, the Biskarov would always walk. Um, Rafal would blow the shayfer for him. He would take care of his matzahs. He would take care of his food throughout the year, his shchita and his Pesach stuff and his shmita. All these uh, uh, stringencies that the Biskarov had about the shmita fruits and everything. So the Rafal was in charge of doing that and getting his dalad mina, the esrig and the lulav, the frisukas, everything. Rafal was actually the main one involved in writing up and printing the uh, the Briskarov Sfarim. Um, and, and he was an amazing person. He was very wise. He was very known for his advice and counsel he gave others. He was known as an address for Shalom bias, for marital uh, issues. People would come to him. He had one daughter who who, um, who married a, a, a fellow named Masano uh, um, uh, Meyerson, I believe. And 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 Rebbefol Soloveitchik lived on Rechov Strauss, in between um, Kikar Shabbos of Geula Mein Sharm and and Hanavim towards Biker Cholim Hospital, and he said, "I'll never, I can't, I can't ever uh, um, uh, move away from Rechov Strauss because people from Yerushalayim, uh, they're right across the street from his house. There was the Yerushalayim Bnei Brak taxi service, and people who were waiting for a taxi there would come by." to his house for a drink, and they relied on it. And people from down the block, they were with relatives who were sick in the Biker Cholim Hospital, they had an address to come to. And he was such an actively involved in every type of chesed um, that he, he, he wanted to be able to stay there so people would always, uh, w- always have an address to go to. 
Um, he was a a a fiery uh, fighter for all all the important issues uh, facing the religious community in Israel in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. He led the demonstrations against uh, against the 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 secular Zionist government, which in his eyes was doing all kinds of things that he uh, felt needed to be demonstrated against. Um, in, for for you know desecration of graves and and desecration Hill Shabbos and all kinds of things. But what he became very famous for actually was during the autopsy scandals in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Um, you know, fighting for to stop autopsies and smuggling bodies out of hospitals. He literally had an army working for him, and he would organize. And he was a fiery speaker and very dynamic. And he was the his 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 living room was the place where it all it all would get planned and. Uh, in, in fact, but it also even in that, in all, in all his fightings and all his public uh, persona like that, he was still he was a brisker. He was the son of the brisker of, and it all went with a certain wisdom and a certain calm and a certain rationale and clarity. You know, he wasn't a Yerushalmi. He was a brisker. He was a Soloveitchik. It's a big, big difference. Uh, and for, I'll just give you one example. There was a big demonstration about autopsies that got violent. And uh, there's always going to be, you know, that in 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 a big crowd and a very in a, in a demonstration that goes violent. And we understand how demonstrations work today. We see it all around here, both in Israel and the United States, in these days. So someone hit a cop in the eye with a rock, and he actually lost his eye. It was a pretty bad, uh, pretty bad hit. Which is not was not Rafael's way. He never condoned violence, and that wasn't his way of doing things. So what does Rafael Soloveitchik do? He goes to visit this policeman in the hospital, and he speaks to him, and he helps him out, and he paid for his his his, his rehabilitation, and he he was so warm and so forthcoming with this police officer that this this police officer, the second police officer, who lost his eye because of some wild guy at a demonstration, um, he he uh, write, writes to Rafael Soloveitchik a letter forgiving him for what he did, for what happened, not for what he did. He didn't do it. And a Rafael Salvation would carry it in his jacket for the rest of his life, and his his, uh, his family found it after he had passed away in the, in his jacket. He took care of all the lost souls in the neighborhood, neighbors, whether they're religious or secular. Um, there's literally uh, endless stories with him. Uh, in, on his on his uh, gravesite, where he's buried next to his father in Haramanuchis, it, they wrote that he's the Rav HaChesed, which is the exact thing that they wrote about his grandfather, Reb Chaim Brisker. He's the Rav HaChesed. He's someone who totally personified Chesed. He's actually named Rafal for his great-grandfather, Rafal Shapiro of Alajan. There's a book about him. There's an entire book about him. Um, it's written in very lousy English, uh, even worse than mine, but the content is amazing. So if you can get past the, the language, then it's very, very good content. And uh, he was actually the only live person that the Satmarov would quote in his speeches, Rafael Soloveitchik. He was, just to give you an example, a hundred stories with him about the chesed he would do. I'll give you one. He would correspond with an elderly Holocaust survivor woman um, from Chicago, and he helped her take care of all kinds of things for her in Israel, including when it came time for her to buy a burial uh, plot. So she called up Rafael and asked him if she can, he can help her. So he went around to the different Hebrew Kaddishas, and he found prices for her on Harazesim and Harmanuchas, and then he sat down with her with this spreadsheet, and said, this is the price range, and this is what it is, you can get here and get there, and this is what the view is like over here. 
there's endless stories about both his activism and his chesed of, of how he cared for so many broken souls and from so many people from diverse backgrounds, people who were different from him. Think about that. He was someone who led the battle in so many areas of, of religious importance. And yet when it came to an individual, individuals, he, he had his, uh, his heart for everyone. Um, but perhaps we'll return to him and say a few more stories about him at a future opportunity. There was another son of the Briskarov who uh, unfortunately had a breakdown. He was, was Reb Chaim, named after, of course, his grandfather, Reb Chaim Brisker. And they used to call him Reb Chaim Derovs, Derovs in the possessive sense. He was Reb Chaim, the son of the Briskarov. And he, he, uh, he grew up without a mother, and his mother was murdered in the Holocaust in a very tragic way. Uh, so that might have contributed to his breakdown. Um, he, and there was always a, a legend that it was because his mother was murdered in front of him, in front of his eyes, which is obviously not true because he left um, Europe with his father and uh, it was long before his mother uh, was killed. In any event, he's one of those personalities that if you really want stories about him, you have to contact your nearest yeshiva guy because this is... When you think about what do yeshivish guys talk about late night in the dorm, in the dormitory, very often it's stories or legends or both about Reb Chaim the Ravs. About all kinds of stories about him that may or may not have happened. So ask your favorite yeshiva guy for some classic dorm room hawk, and you'll get some great stories about Reb Chaim the Ravs. He never married. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the legendary stories about him is that he almost married a girl once, and the girl actually said yes, she was interested in marrying him. But he said no. They said, well, you're finally able to get married, someone has agrees to marry you. So he says, I thought about it, and I said, if she's willing to marry me, you know, I'm, I'm a little crazy. So if she's willing to marry me, she must be crazy. I don't want to marry someone who's a Meshugana. You know, and, and there was a one of the classic stories about him is that someone saw him um, pushing a baby carriage, a baby stroller, and there was, when peering inside, there was a safer inside. And again, fill in the blank of your favorite safer. And, uh, and asked him, why are you pushing the safer in a baby carriage? He said, oh, I was learning a piece in this safer, and, and I, I didn't re- really appreciate what he was saying. I didn't like it, and I feel he was speaking like a baby. So I figured I'll give him a ride in the baby stroller. But let's move on to another child of the Briskarov. Rameir, who just passed away recently, he was one of the youngest children. He got married just a couple of months before his father passed away to a Benedict from Bnei Brak. And it's interesting because that Shabbos Shevabrachis that he got after he got married in Bnei Brak became very famous. It was in the Vagshal, the old Vagshal Hall in, in Bnei Brak. And it was a major event in Bnei Brak history because the Briskarov came for Shabbos. And the Briskarov was a mythical figure even in his own lifetime. And... Uh, and that Shabbos was something special. People from all over Bnei Brak came to speak to him, to just to see him. It was shortly before he passed away. He was already elderly and not well. And in fact, there's a story along that Shabbos that the refrigerator in the Vagshal Hall, they, that the, the Briskarov, uh, so goes the story. Go, fi- go figure if any of these stories are true. But, um, but uh, that, that the Briskarov wouldn't take used food from that fridge. So of course, the rumor went around that it was because it was using electricity and it wasn't on a generator and the Briskarov was very stringent about these Shabbos matters, he did not want to use it. When in fact, the reason that he didn't use it is because he he uh, he found out that the temperature in the fridge was not high, it was not high enough, so he felt that the food was not being kept cold 
and therefore he was uh, suspicious that the food might be spoiled. Well, something like that. Anyways, I'm probably messing up the details of the story. But Romero Soloveitchik also had a yeshiva. He was a very personable individual. I met him a couple of times. And that brings us to Ibad Elachayim, um, the Briskarov's uh, children who are still alive. We still have a couple of children of the Briskarov still alive among with, with us, and may they live and be well for many, many more help, healthy years to come. Rabbi David Soloveitchik, who also has a yeshiva, who's, may he live and be well, so he married a Sternbach, a daughter of Rabbi Asher Sternbach from England. Um, uh, Rabbi Asher Arieli, my Rebbe in the uh, Mary Shiva. So he's named for his grandfather, Rabbi Asher Sternbach, because another Sternbach daughter married Rabbi Chaim Yaakov Arieli, Rabbi Asher's father. So this is Rabbi Asher's uncle. So Rabbi Asher Arieli told me a couple of stories of interactions he had with his uh, uncle, Rabbi David. It's interesting, Rabbi David was... Neighbors with the with uh, Reb da- with another Reb David, Reb David Koyen, Reb David Kohn, the Rav Hanazir, the close student of Rav Kook and the Rebbe and the Rosh Hashiva and Merkaz Harav. And after the Six Day War, the Rav Hanazir brought a stone from the Har Habayis and showed it to Reb David. And Reb David went wild; he went running. He didn't want to touch it. He didn't want to look at it. The Briskers, even when they go to the Kaisel, they don't touch the the wall. They're nervous that perhaps it's part of the Har Habayis and they can't. You know, and when they're tame, they can come too close, so they they stay away with a certain awe, certain respect, and they don't come too close to the kaisel. So the legend goes that the Reb David can't move out of his apartment; he has to stay there because when his when he got married, his father, the Briskerov, visited him there, and he said he pointed to a certain spot and says, "This is where Dokim and Sinan the Menayer. This is where you can light your Hanukkah candles." So he knows that this place you can light. And who knows if there's another place in the world that you could. So therefore, he is staying in that apartment until further notice. Rabbi Asher once told me, it was, it was after Shear, and we were all asking him questions. Rabbi Asher, after the Shear, it was like a football huddle after every Shear where you ask him uh, questions. And uh, Rabbi Asher brought in support of something he was saying. He brought a proof that he deduced from a Rambam in the Pirush HaMishnayis of the Rambam, the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnayis. And Rabasha pointed out, I'm bringing a proof from this Rambam in Pirush HaMishnayis only from the Rabbi Yichye Kapach version of the Mishnayis. The Rambam wrote the Pirush HaMishnayis in Arabic, and Rabbi Yehuda Ibn Tibbin translated it from Arabic into Hebrew, and that's what we have. But along came a Yemenite scholar in modern times and did a retranslation from the original manuscript in Arabic, and came out with a different translation, and a lot of different words, and a lot of different language that the Rambam seemingly uses when using Rabbi Kapach's translation. And of course, since it's new, since it's modern, so some people are suspicious of the Kapach translation, so the Rabbi Asher emphasized the proof I'm bringing is only according to the Kapach, Harav Kapach, that's how he called him, his translation. And so someone in this huddle made like some sort of face, like, oh, you're using... The modern translations. So Rabbi Asher noticed that this uh, this uh, smirk that this person that this uh, this one made it wasn't me, by the way. And Rabbi Asher said that my uncle Rabbi David, the Feter Rabbi David, he in the beginning did not want to use the Kapach Mishnayis until he, after you know trial and error, a couple of times he found out that the Kapach Mishnayis was more accurate. And he said Rabbi Asher finished off and he said when jetzt the Feter Yedmol Bet, bet, the, the Pirish Mishnah is Norfun Harav Kapach. 
And my uncle asks for the Pirish Mishnayis. He only wants from Harav Kapach. So, so there's lots to say about Rav David. There's loads of stories, but he's contemporary, and we only deal in history here. Um, so we'll go for a minute to the uh, youngest child of the Briskarav, um, the Rebetzin Rivka, the wife of Rabbi Yankel Schiff. May they both live and be well. And uh, she was very young when they came to Israel. She, you know, her mother was killed. And the Rav was very devoted to her. He would play with her, he would sing with her, and he would take care of her every need. It's important to emphasize that because people have this certain stern image of the Briskarov, and he was this incredibly devoted father and understood that his children had a lot of challenge, uh, his younger children had challenge because they didn't have a mother in the home, and he literally uh, would, uh, would, would try to you know, rep- give, fill that void. In fact, uh, he did that for his grandkids too. He, his, some of the Briskarov's grandchildren related that he would make paper airplanes for his grandchildren and play with them. Um, he, another interesting thing about the Briskarov, before I get back to his daughter Rivka, so uh, on one of his walks, one time he was walking up to, on, on, uh, from, from first to where he lived in Rehov Press up to Rehov Yishayo, then he made a ride onto Rehov David Yellen. So one of, there was an elderly woman who she was, she was hanging out her rugs to clean. And she didn't recognize the Briskarov. She saw a man in the street. And the Rav always walked with an umbrella, either a cane or an umbrella. So she asked the Rav, can you help me bang out my rugs? And uh, so he went ahead and banged out her rugs with his umbrella. Spent a few minutes. You know, the woman calls out in Hebrew, Adoni, Adoni, mister, can you help out bang out my rugs? And the Briskarov complied. He said, yeah, sure, no problem. And she thanked him. She said, thank you so much. And the person accompanying the Briskarov said, uh, oh, you're just going ahead and do that. You're the Briskarov. And he said, it's chesed. Why can't I do some chesed? It's not a big deal. And so also, again, one of the good stories about the, the human side of such great people and what made them so great. So Rabbi Yankel Schiff, uh, I once had the privilege of speaking to him, and he told, told me that his father was Harry Schiff from Dumbrava in Galicia. And Rabbi Yankel Schiff was impressed that I had heard of Dumbrava. And, and so it's interesting, he came from a Galicianer background, and Rabbi Yankel Schiff's older brother, Rabbi Shia Schiff, married the daughter of Rabbi Shaga Feivel Mendelovich in, in Tarvidas, who was Hungarian. And he, Rabbi Yankel Schiff, married a Litvak. So you have the Galicianers, they go both ways, either the, to the Hungarian side or the Litvak. So Rabbi Yankel Schiff himself was a student at Yeshiva Tarvidas, and then of Rabbi Aaron Cutler in Lakewood. And at that point, he was suggested to marry the Rav's youngest daughter. This is while the Rav was still alive. I don't remember if, I don't think he was married when the Rav was still alive, but at least uh, the Shidduch was suggested. And when he came to Israel to, uh, to, uh, to meet the Briskarov's daughter, this Rebetzin Rivka, so while he was being uh, checked out, see, he hung around the Mir Yeshiva. So again, the Mir wasn't able to, the Briskers couldn't do anything without the Mir. And uh, he, Rebbe Yudel Finkel, the Mir Yeshiva, hosted him while the Briskarov's sons checked him out and made sure he's good enough for their sister. He's a very special man, Rabbi Yankel Schiff. He's completely devoted to his asmada, to his devotion and complete dedication to learning his entire life. There's definitely more to say. I went about 20 minutes over time again, so hopefully we'll get to more in a part two. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours, and subscribe to his Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean 
and and follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.